0: welcome to another episode of dealmaker diaries i'm your host donald thomas today we have with us mr joel friedland joel has a 42 year track record in industrial real estate he co-founded epic savage realty partners in 1991 where he oversaw hiring and mentoring 60 industrial real estate professionals many of whom became his partners his group sold the firm to an international real estate company in 2014 and Joel started Brit Properties. As an industrial real estate broker and owner, Joel has secured over 2,000 industrial property leases and sales totaling over $250 million in acquisitions. His greatest accomplishment is maintaining valued relationships with brokers, tenants, and investors spanning five decades. He does fully syndicated deals with 0% debt, an unheard of approach in real estate which caters to his wealthy investor base, primarily concerned with conservation of principle. His experiences during the Great Recession in 2008 have formed his investment approach to be hyper conservative while still allowing an 8% cash return, plus upside for his investors. Joel attended the University of Michigan and enjoys playing golf and spending time with his family, particularly his three young grandchildren. So let's give Joel, a warm welcome to the show. Let's go.
1: Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where business meets opportunity. The podcast that takes you on a thrilling journey through the world of commercial real estate and mergers and acquisitions. Join us as we unravel the secrets behind the rise and fall of industry titans, explore lucrative investment strategies, and dive deep into the captivating stories that shape the ever-evolving landscape of business. Through in-depth interviews with industry experts, CEOs, and influential thought leaders, we uncover the hidden gems of commercial real estate, unveil the secrets of lucrative property acquisitions, learn how to identify emerging markets, and gain a deep understanding of the negotiation tactics that seal million-dollar deals. But that's not all. DealMaker Diaries also delves into the thrilling world of mergers and acquisitions. Discover the stories behind high-profile mergers, hear from the masterminds who orchestrated billion-dollar transactions, and gain exclusive insights into the strategies and intricacies of successful M&A deals. Whether you're a seasoned investor or a curious listener, Dealmaker Diaries offers a treasure trove of knowledge, empowering you to make informed decisions, spot lucrative opportunities, and navigate the ever-changing tides of the commercial real estate and M&A markets. Available on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe today and let us be your trusted guide in the fascinating world of commercial real estate and mergers and acquisitions.
0: So Joel, welcome to the show. So nice to have you here today.
2: Thanks, Donald, it's nice to be with you.
0: I hope your day is off to a great start.
2: It definitely is, yes. Yeah. Uh, today, um, I had a very interesting day. Uh, I'm putting lights in my backyard. You know those, those bistro lights like they have outdoors at restaurants?
0: Oh yeah, yeah.
2: So they, they string them up, they attach them to, to the back of our house on our patio and the light guy came over and he's putting these big poles in the woods so that you can't really see them and then he puts these wires up. So he was here early this morning and he was showing my wife and me how he's gonna put the lights up. Turns out you can make them any color. So for Halloween, you can make them orange. (laughs) And for Christmas, you can make them green or red. So that was the start of my day. And uh, it was really fun because I'm looking forward to getting those lights.
0: Yeah, that should be very cool. Yeah, yeah. you'll have, you have to send me some pics so I can see the, the final product.
2: I will, I will, yeah.
0: Right, so, so Joel, why don't we hop right in? I mean, you've been in the real estate industry for going back a few decades now, maybe three or four. So can you share some insights into your journey in the industrial real estate industry and sure, what, sure. what initially drew you to this field?
2: Yeah, I wasn't drawn, uh, I was accidental. Uh, What happened was I graduated from the University of Michigan, and I knew I wanted to go into real estate. I just didn't know what kind of real estate. I I knew people who were successful in real estate. It was 1981. Interest rates were literally, no joke, 21% on loans. There was a huge recession on. I was 22 years old, and I, I was introduced by a good friend of mine to a family. It was a father in his 60s same age that I am now, two sons and a daughter, their last name was Podolsky, and they owned 84 industrial buildings, but they owned them with about 100 partners, they were syndicators. I had never heard of any of that. So I cold called this father, Milt Podolsky, and I said, hey, my friend Mark told me I should call you, I want to get into real estate. So I interviewed with him literally that afternoon, I went and saw him. And he said, so I've got 10 vacant buildings out of 84. What would you do to fill them up? I said, well, when I was a kid, I went door to door when I was 14 years old, trying to get people to uh, hire me to cut their lawn. And in one weekend by just stopping in at people's homes, I got 70 lawns. And I had to hire kids from my middle school, my high school, I couldn't drive. So I had to actually hire kids to drive cars with trailers with lawnmowers and supplies. And I said to, to Milt Podolsky, what I would do is I'd go to an industrial park and I'd knock on doors. I'd go to each company and tell them, hey, I've got a vacant building down the street. How would you like to lease it? He said, young man, you are hired. And so I, st- <laughs> so I started. It was uh, the summer of 1981, beautiful weather. I went door to door and I made 36 leases uh, that year. I leased up most of Milt's building, all all but one building. And then I did some general uh, industrial real estate brokerage as a tenant rep. And I had companies hire me, uh, families that own buildings to represent them to lease their space. So I became an industrial real estate broker. And then I started watching Milt and seeing that he was living the lifestyle of a millionaire while all the brokers were living the lifestyle of pretend millionaires. (laughs) You know there's an old saying brokers die broke because what happens is they get a nice car and they get a nice house and they get a big mortgage and they get payments and they they live like they're big shots there's big shot i call it big shot itis and we all do it you start making money all of a sudden you're you're 22 years old and you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year and as a kid, you didn't have any money, and so you say, hey, I'm gonna get a car, I'm gonna get my BMW, and I'm gonna rent a fancy apartment, and you do all that, and then you spend all your money, and how do you invest? Yeah. It's impossible. Showing you people how, how
0: successful you are, you are right?
2: Yeah, and, and it's it becomes an ego thing. It becomes like a mental health thing. Like, how how what do I have to prove to people, right? But when you're 22, you do have something to prove. So I was trying to prove something, and I watched Milt and I saw that he had a, uh, a winter home in Florida and he had a downtown condo and a fancy building in the city of Chicago where we live, in addition to his home in a fancy suburb. And I said, Milt, I don't think that you have all these homes and all this money because you're a broker. He said, kid, I'm an owner. You've got to be an owner. I said, well, that's what I want to be. So I said, how do I, how do I start? I want to be a syndicator like you. He said, well, I'll put up a third of the money if you find a good deal. And I'll give you names of people to go find as investors and ask them to invest 20 grand each, 20, 30, 40, $50,000. And I found a deal. It was 560,000 milk put in a third of the money like he promised. And he gave me names and I went out and I met with his Uh, I made calls. I met with his investors and convinced them to put their 20 grand in with me. First thing they asked me, most of them was, how much are you putting in? And remember, I was a broker. I didn't have that much money, so I said, I'll put in 20,000 also. So I bought my first building with a group of investors as a syndicator. Uh, It was 1989, so I'd been in the business for about eight years. And I just started buying buildings with investors. I started building relationships with people that I met through brokerage. As a broker, the beautiful thing was I met a whole bunch of people that were wealthy and that liked me. Cause you know, I was fighting. Hey, I'm, I'm your tenant rep. I'm gonna fight the landlord and get you a good deal. So they saw me as a fighter on their behalf. So they invested and I bought a bunch of buildings. And then in 2008, there were a few ups and downs. I bought about 90 buildings and all of a sudden the market tanked and the economy tanked and the world was upside down financially and I went into a deep emotional depression. It was really devastating. I thought that I had lost money for 200 people and I thought um, thought that my life was over. I was ashamed. I felt like just guilty and terrible. And i was on that couch see that couch that was (laughs) there that was there in 2008 and i was on the couch and i couldn't get off and i didn't know what to do so i one day talked to my mother who's a therapist she said you need you need professional help and i went and i saw a therapist and i went and i saw a doctor who helped me with some medication and i actually went to a meditation class Uh, my meditation uh, guided meditation teacher was a guy named om om and it was great <laughs> and i worked my way out of it and instead of going broke you know i just it was like climbing out of a deep dark hole but i saw daylight, and i kept working at it and i woke up one day and i said hey i'm out of this and from now on i'm going to do deals where that's not going to ever happen again and i started doing my syndications, a hundred percent equity, no debt. Mm. I, I heard one of your podcasts, you had someone on who also believes in no debt, someone who does yeah. some residential stuff where, so I related to that because, um, I don't want to be in a position where like I was then seven banks were really breathing down my neck. Right. And yeah. So, yeah. So now we buy industrial buildings. We can talk about industrial buildings if you'd like. We buy B and C, small industrial buildings that cost between a million and $5 million. And we do them all cash for the most part. Sometimes we get a small mortgage, but never more than a 30% loan to value.
0: Okay. All right. So, Joel, let's, and let's, let's rewind a little. So co-founding Epic and Savage Realty Partners in 1991 was a significant significant milestone in your career. So can, can you tell us about the challenges and opportunities you faced during that time?
2: Sure. Um, so the Podowski family mentored me. I think it's really important to have good mentors, and all of them were good mentors, the whole family. But in 1991, uh, my second daughter was born, and I wanted to be more than a broker working for someone else's family. And I went to them, and I asked if they would consider adopting me <laughs> I, wanted be, I wanted to be an owner. And they said, we'll give you 5% of the business. And I said, no, I'm not a 5% kind of guy. So I got together with three other people who were uh, in the business, who owned property and who managed property. And we started our own company. My, my uh, we called it Epic Savage. Epic were the initials of my grandparents. And Savage was my partner, a fellow named Lou Savage. Uh, his kids are uh, actors. They're TV actors. You ever see the Wonder Years? That TV show? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. But Fred Savage. That's uh, the son of my partner that I started the business with. That was Epic Savage. Oh, and Lou cool. being here, and then his other son had a TV show uh, called Boy Meets World, and that son Ben is actually running for Congress in uh, California.
0: Okay. Yeah. I know And yeah, I know that show Boy Meets World as well. Okay. Yeah. Very, very cool.
2: Yeah, so we started and we built it up. We had 26 brokers and we were buying buildings. Every year we were buying. One year we bought 17 buildings.
0: Wow, one year.
2: Yeah, all syndicated with investors. And it was all based on my relationships with investors that I had built over the years. People who saw me go through the crap of 2008 and work my way out of the hole, they trusted me. They knew that I would work hard even if we got in trouble again. And so... I had a bunch of people who were investing and instead of investing 20,000, now I have people who invest on average, about a hundred thousand per deal. So if we buy a $7 million deal, I get a hundred investors, let's say on average at uh, 70 investors at a hundred thousand each. Okay. So all cash. And we've got a portfolio now of buildings where people, uh, companies manufacture products like manufacturing, nothing heavy, like uh, food items. One of our tenants was on Shark Tank and he makes protein bars. One of our tenants was on a TV show called uh, Undercover Boss and he's got the biggest limousine company in the world and he's a tenant in one of our buildings. They're great TV. You can watch the episodes of my tenants. (laughs) They're really fun, they're very entertaining. And then we've got just some local companies and some national companies who manufacture one makes uh, children's exhibits for children's museums. And I've got another one who makes uh, products for the welding industry, safety products. You know those screens so that you don't ruin your eyes when they're doing welding? you know, you got the welders. Oh, yeah. yeah, if you look at that flame, apparently it does something to your eye that, that ruins your eyesight. So you need those screens that are... Like red or blue or green, and they're they're attached to a big frame. Company makes those. Okay, makes a lot of them, and because they pay two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in net rent per year, and uh, they have to be able to afford the twenty one thousand a month, and the taxes and the insurance, and and the maintenance. And so those are the kind of tenants we have in little buildings that are all over the Chicago area. Mostly near O'Hare Airport, mostly near the city. We call that infill property. <laughs> and that's our business. It's very fun. We we, uh, we we like to give cash flow. I know that's one of your things. We are cash flow driven. We like to make between 7 and 8% to start on a deal with annual escalations where we try to get it up to 9 and 10% within 10 years. And we own long term. Okay. Yeah. And
0: I would think so if you're doing 80 to hundred percent equity, I would think yeah, most of those would be long term or legacy holes as we like to call them. Yeah. Yes. Legacy. Right. Yeah. All right. So, and you mentioned mentoring uh, just a little while ago, and I know you've overseen the hiring and mentoring of 60 industrial real estate professionals at Epic Savage Realty Partners. So what, what, what qualities do you look for in potential team members and how do you nurture their growth in the industry?
2: Well, first of all, they have to be eager. They have to they have to wanna. They have to have a desire to be successful, and they have to be somewhat aggressive. You can't teach aggression, and you can't teach you can't teach desire. They either, you either have it or you don't. And I know pretty quickly whether someone's got it. I can usually tell within about ninety days if they're bad. I can't tell if they're good. To tell if they're good, it usually takes somewhere in the neighborhood of a year to two years. But I can tell if they're bad. Tell you how you know someone's not going to work out. I drive the young. I, I, I still do this with my current partners and my other business. We sold our company uh, in 2014 to Transwestern in, in Texas. You know, you know them. No, I haven't heard of them. Okay, so they're they're a multinational commercial real estate firm. So we sold to them. Uh, but before that, I would hire someone and I put them in my car and I'd say, Hey, kid, we're going for a ride and I would take them to an industrial park and I would stop in the middle of the industrial park between maybe five, six, seven buildings on a street. And I'd say, your job is to figure out how to get into the front door of a company and find your way to the owner of the company to ask them if they would consider selling their building. And if someone says,
1: well, uh, I can't do that.
2: I, then I'll say, okay, I'll go with you for the first three or four. And then I would go with them. And I'd walk in and usually in the old days, there was a receptionist these days because everybody works at home. You walk in the door <laughs> and uh, nobody's there. Yeah, so It's real easy. I just wind my way to the corner office because usually the corner office is where, where the boss is who owns, mm-hmm. the, who owns the business. You could get shot that way.
0: Especially in Texas,
2: yeah. Especially in Texas, (laughs) I I have scared people by walking in the front door and winding my way to their office. It's like, "How did you get in here? Who are you?" And I I put them at ease right away. One guy called the police, and I thought it was so funny that I stayed until the police came, and then I talked to the police, and it was it was hysterical.
0: And you sold him a building. (laughs)
2: no No, but you know i said hey we own a building down the street i'd love to see the police officer we own the building three doors down i'm glad you're here you know please keep the neighborhood safe yeah and and then the guy who called the police would get all upset and say i didn't think that was gonna happen
0: (laughs) yeah that's that's not the outcome i was looking for
2: (laughs) no i thought he's gonna arrest you so yeah so i can tell if somebody's good and if they're good they ask a lot of questions the whole thing about success is if you're a great question asker if you're curious and, and you really care about the answers and learning and you're aggressive and you have the desire you can become a millionaire within three or four years in our business For sure, the, first, the commercial real estate business in the first year people are lucky as a broker to make you know 60 70 80 grand But then in the second or third year they start making 250 300 and then by the fourth year they can make a half a million dollars as an industrial broker because the commissions on a on a deal are equivalent to the square footage of the building usually that's that's a rule of thumb so if they lease a million square feet of buildings they make a million dollars in commissions Hmm. so it's a very lucrative business and it's very hard to get in you have to know somebody that you need to be mentored. But that's what I did. I would train them. And of the 60 that I trained, about 40 washed out. They just didn't have the talent, the desire, the whatever. But 20 of them are still in the business, and they're super successful. We see each other. We do deals with each other. We're close. It's nice to stay in touch with them. A lot of them invest with me, so I send them quarterly distributions. That's okay. how we stay.
0: All right, and Joel. So, and, so you exited this business in 2014. Um, could you walk us through the decision-making process and the impact it had on your career and the company's future after that exit?
2: Yeah, I started my own new business because brokerage, commercial brokerage, is a young person's business. When when you get older, it's hard to keep doing deals. It's hard to be um, a deal maker. It, it's easier when you're older to to have a different position in a, in a deal, which I find it's better to be an owner. It's better to be uh, calling the shots uh, as, as a person who controls something. you got to control something. When you're a broker, the only thing you control to an extent are the quality of your relationships. But when mm-hmm. you start buying stuff, with people, then you control the buildings and then it's a matter of being a really good shepherd for uh, the owners that you represent as as, uh, partners. So I decided at at my age in 2014, I was uh, 53 and I said 54, I said I've got to be an owner and I was already because I put a lot of deals together with the Epic Savage Group but I decided to totally flip it and become more of an owner and more of a syndicator and less of a broker. And it was hard to give up the brokerage income though, because I could make 15, 20 brokerage deals a year. And that was a great supplement. So it was a a big change. And I said to my family, I'm gonna make a big change in what I do. And it's risky because when you buy buildings, they can go down in value and you never know what's gonna happen. In brokerage, you're just selling your time. You're not really, you're not taking a risk with your money. So I have to invest in deals in order to get people to go into deals. So I've been investing and co-investing and bringing in people. And at this point, my last deal, uh, we're closing a deal this uh, this week. It's three buildings on a five-acre site on the Chicago River, occupied by a company that makes fruit juice concentrate called Tampico and they're it's a big company they're in the hundreds of millions of dollars in sales and I raised uh, 10 million okay. and we're, and we're borrowing uh, four million so it's unusual that I borrow but it's a 30% loan to value ratio if you look at it roughly. and Tampico's got a seven-year lease in all in, in two of the three buildings and there's a another tenant in the other building in the same business uh the people were buying it from it's a family that used to own the tampico business before they sold out to private equity and that's what we're doing is we're going to be the owners of those buildings and 15 others all around the area and we manage them ourselves which is really hard work and by the way commercial real estate management it's hard to make money it's a money loser Mm -hmm. I lose money every day on my management business. If you do it right, there's a lot of accounting, there's a lot of inspections, repairs. It's it's a it's a tough business.
0: So why do you do it? Why not, why not source it out then if it's not profitable?
2: Well, I'd have to pay someone else to do it and then I would still have to act like the owner and I'd still have to make many, many of the decisions so at least this way, so I look at it this way, my, my management business, maybe it's a half million dollars of income. It's a small business. And maybe I lose, uh, $200,000 a year on it. So I wish it was 700,000 instead of 500, then I'd break even.
1: But if I
2: hired another manager, they would make 500,000. We'd make zero. I'd still have to have a tremendous amount of, um, connectivity to them, mm-hmm. making yeah. decisions. I'd have to look at I'm not going to let them decide to do a new roof and let them decide which roofer to use without looking at it and making sure I understood the bids and all the specs. So, at least I'm only losing $200,000 a year instead of losing more than that for doing the work that I would have to do as an owner anyway. If right. I could figure yeah. out how to make it profitable, I would. It's funny, an investor will say to me, Hey, I'll put a hundred grand into this deal, but you're making a lot of money. You're making all this money on management. I go, okay, you do it. <laughs> <laughs> you do it. Tell you what, the management on this building is $30,000 a year. You do it. And then let me know how it goes and call me every time you need a decision and I'll show you how I work. Cause I'm impossible. Cause I need to make good decisions on your behalf as an owner, not as, yeah. not as a property manager. So when you come to me and you say, you got to pick who's going to plow the snow and who's going to cut the lawn, I'm going to look at that and I'm going to give you a really hard time. So you're going to be answering to me every day like my employees do. And you can make 30 grand and you can see that you'll lose 10. Right. Yeah. Not including your time. And they usually exactly. say, no, no, no. You do it. You do it. It's okay. <laughs> okay.
0: All right. And Joel, so you secured over... 2,000 industrial property leases and sales during your career, probably more. Can you yeah. share a memorable success story or deal that you're particularly proud of?
2: Yeah, my favorite one, uh, there's a company in Chicago. It's a very famous, iconic uh, brand of cheesecake. It's called Eli's Cheesecake. Here's, here's the hat.
0: Oh, yeah, I know Eli's. So I lived in Chicago um, four years, so I know it's such a great city to live in. So yeah, it is a Eli's great well.
2: city. It's a, and it's great for industrial. We
0: have a million
2: yeah. and a half square feet of industrial, 22,000 industrial companies and 16,000 industrial buildings. So I met Eli's through a referral. The, the fellow who owns it, his name is Mark. And someone introduced me to him in 1983. I was two years in the business. And he was in a 20,000-foot building in the city on the west side. And he needed more space. So I took him on a tour every week of buildings, industrial buildings that have uh, food manufacturing elements ready for this for five years. We couldn't find one because there's, it's really hard to find a building for sale. That's why I love my business. It, it's Once we find a building, everybody would want it if my tenant ever moves out because it's hard for people who use the manufacturers to find buildings to buy because most people don't like to sell them because they have to Mm. pay taxes. So Mark couldn't find a building. So we ended up finding a piece of land, not even a mile from where it was located, five acres, and designing a bakery, a commercial bakery, 60,000 square feet. And he built the building with my help and with the help of a great architect uh, named Michael Aragona, who specializes in food manufacturing. And it's a multi-million-dollar building, and he grew out of it. And we started a number of years ago developing a plan to put a forty-thousand-square-foot addition on. And last week we, ta- we we finished the addition, and they moved into the building. And now they have a hundred thousand feet. They're, they do tens of millions wow. of dollars of, of volume. They, they supply Starbucks and Trader Joe's and the airlines. They. If you fly uh, business class, one of their products is called Pie in the Sky. And Mark now has this 280 employee business. He hired uh, 70 uh, Afghan um, uh, refugees to work there. He he trains people who are otherwise unemployed and unemployable, he helps the community and he's such an incredible guy and it's such a great company and i just had the honor of being able to help him build the original building develop it develop the addition and watch him grow and eat as much cheesecake as i want
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing yeah that's a cool story yeah
1: yeah yeah. it's
2: great
0: so Uh, And you're very keen on relationships as well, Joel. Maintaining long lasting relationships is one of your greatest accomplishments. So what strategies and principles have you followed to build and sustain such value connections over five five decades?
2: The answer is caring about the other person very much. That's the answer. Caring about who they are, what's important to them, uh, who their family is, what their goals are, what we have in common, spending quality time together, having lunches. I did a deal with somebody a year and a half ago who's in the pork processing business in Chicago, and he's building a thirty-five million dollar complex on a six-acre site. And tomorrow night, my son and I, and he and his son, are having dinner at Trulux, which is a great place near the airport. It's a fish place, fish and steak, and. It's just getting together and liking the person, looking for the best in everybody, staying in touch. I'm on the phone all day long with my people, getting together with them frequently, lots of emails and texts back and forth. It's just wanting to be a giver. I like to, if someone asks me to do something, I'll do anything for my friends and for my partners. And I like to give more than I take. That's the secret to it.
0: Okay, awesome. So, Joel, could you shed some light on the key trends and challenges in the industrial real estate market today?
2: Yeah, there's hardly anything available because uh, the internet and what's called reshoring or onshoring, which is where companies are coming back from manufacturing overseas, they're having trouble because of the politics of China, for example, and they're afraid that they're not going to have their supply chain working for them properly. If they can't make certain things here, everything in this office and everything in in your place is made in an industrial building, everything, what you eat, what you touch, what you sleep on, what you walk on the windows, the furniture, your computer, your phone, everything. And the components of all of the things your, your headphones, there, there must be 30 components and they're not all made by Bose or by whoever makes your headphones. They're made by suppliers who all have an industrial building. So the, the issue that is occurring today is that the companies need buildings and there just aren't enough buildings. There's a high, su- a high demand and a low supply of properties. So the real challenge today is finding something to buy at a relatively reasonable price because if a building comes on the market if a company's moving out of a building and they want to sell it they might have three or four buyers lined up yeah. and that's the big challenge today is finding a building that's reasonably priced in a great location with good specifications they need good loading docks they need high ceilings they need good power you need, you need what's called amperage and volts so that mm-hmm. you can hook up your machines to to the uh, to the electricity and run your operation. Uh, they need nice offices. They need good parking. I, I kid around. There's three rules in industrial real estate. Parking, parking and parking.
0: Yeah, and it's yeah. interesting. I, I mean, you you, you mentioned um, reasonably priced. I mean, I don't know if it's the same for industrial, but what I see in multifamily and light industrial storage, everybody's valuing on pro forma now. I mean they basically I just don't get it like that's not how it works how are you valuing pro forma are you saying the same thing in industrial as well
2: yeah yeah I don't I don't believe much of what people say when they tell me how great a deal is I have to look at it really carefully myself
0: mm-hmm.
2: I've got partners who I've, I've eight uh, investors who are what I call my advisory board they all are very sophisticated owners of companies and buildings And I don't do anything without running the physical property, the location, the price, the value by those people. We usually have a big Zoom call or a conference call. And we turn down, I would say, 90% of everything we see. And then when we pursue things, sometimes we pursue them and we even spend money on due diligence to figure out if, if the buildings are all right. We just turned down three. We spent $40,000 checking them out and found out afterwards there were three things wrong with them that we couldn't tolerate. (laughs) So we lost 40 grand and walked away. So it's really hard to find good deals. And we're competing with buyers who are investors. We're competing with buyers who are users and we just have to find something that someone just doesn't want to own anymore. They know we'll pay off cash. They know we'll close. pretty nice to work with and by the way it's not it's not a small thing that we meet their tenants and their tenants actually will call them after our meeting and say hey we like these guys if you sell the building to them we'll be happy that's a big deal yeah
0: all right very cool so so joel can you tell us about any upcoming projects or goals you have for brit properties or your personal endeavors in the real estate world
2: yeah I hate to say this, but investors leave us sometimes. Sometimes they get old and they don't want to. One comment they make is I'm I'm too old now. Don't sell me any green bananas, which means I don't want to invest in a long term deal. And we have to replace investors who leave. There's attrition. And by the way, some pass away. We have a lot of people when I was younger, my investors were older and now they're A lot of them are in their eighties and nineties and their families are taking over a lot of their investments and maybe their families aren't interested like they were in industrial. So I have to constantly be on the lookout for new uh, relationships with new investors. And my goal, it's just a, it's a stated goal is to have 20 new quality investors every year. And it's, the net is I might lose five investors in a year, so the net is really fifteen. Okay. So I like the uh, referrals and other ways of finding new people and getting to know them. That's that the, the chase is a fun thing. Getting to know someone, it's like dating. <laughs> it's like going out on a date. Oh, like, what do you do? What do you do? How old are your kids? You know, and it's important mm. to know those things.
0: Yeah,
2: and I love that. I love that. So one goal is to have fifteen more investors a year and. Another thing is to buy seven buildings a year. Okay. Our average building price is about three million. So that's about 21 million of, of investment per year. If There's no, if there's no debt. So those are the two main goals.
0: Okay. So Joel, lastly, um, what motivates you to continue your work in the real estate industry? And what legacy do you hope to leave behind for future generations of real estate professionals?
2: That's a great question. I think the most important thing for any person is to have good judgment. Common sense is not common. It's very uncommon. And it takes a lot of experience and wisdom to make good decisions. And I'm not saying that I'm so wise, but boy, I try hard. And so I would really like to make sure that when I make a decision on behalf of an investor or in my personal life, that it's something that I'll never be ashamed of, that I can hold my head high and say, I made the best decision possible with all the elements that are required to make a good decision. Making sure you look at uh, everything from the standpoint of risk, uh, uh, some of the upsides in things, I have something that I call my not to do list. It's really important to know what what you shouldn't be doing so that you stay on the right track and don't spend time doing things that aren't important to you that aren't in line with your values. And so making good decisions is what motivates me and helping younger people who are not as experienced to become good decision makers with good judgment. For me, if I can help some if I can help one person have good judgment about something that they're not up on that they can learn about. That that that's what motivates me.
0: All right, excellent. Are your are your kids, did you say your kids are in the business as well?
2: I just have one of the three, my youngest, uh, he's twenty eight, Sam. Okay. He's been in for two years and I'm I'm he he works for my partner and for me. I've got a, a partner, Eric, who's fantastic who does have great judgment. Been with me for five years, and he's my succession plan. If something happens to me, Eric's in charge, and he is—I I just trust him completely. And my son Sam would back him up, would would really sort of represent the family interests, but defer to Eric because Eric is the main man. Okay. Yeah,
0: that's—I mean—that's the most a man could ask for, right? That his kids want to follow in his footsteps and take over what he's built.
2: Yeah, but family businesses cause trouble. You gotta be real careful. Uh, I've I've watched dozens and dozens of families break up over business and money. So it's yeah,
0: that's true.
2: There's a real tough road for most families. Someone at least one of the people has to be extremely tolerant of the others. You can't have two intolerant people and you have to give again, like with relationships, you have to give more than you take and be willing to listen and compromise. And that's yeah. tough in a family. Definitely. Yeah, I can attest to that personally. So, oh, another most podcast people, there. <laughs> most people can. We could do a whole podcast on family strife and, and, and money. For
0: sure. All right. So why don't we hop in the lightning round before I let you let you out of here. Sure. So I'll start off with um, softball, um, coffee or tea? Coffee, six cups a day. Oh, wow. Every four yeah. hours or maybe every two. <laughs> yeah. All right. And favorite book related to real estate or business?
2: Well, this is my favorite book. It's called The Four Agreements. And it's actually not real estate and it's not business, but it's about being the kind of person you want to be. Keeping your word, being honest, being honest being tolerant, following through, that kind of thing. And most people don't do that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. And favorite place you've traveled for work or leisure?
2: Panama. My wife and I went to Panama. Oh, very Time First we saw the Panama Canal, and we ate in great restaurants, and we looked at the history, and then we took a plane to a, a beach resort. We sat it out on the beach on the Pacific uh, coast of Panama. And then we went to these, you know, I love coffee. We went to this, this coffee uh, farm and we actually picked coffee beans and then we tasted different kinds of coffee. Award winning coffee from Panama. Greatest trip ever for us.
0: Yeah, that sounds nice. Never been to Panama. Okay. And early bird or night owl?
2: Oh, night owl, two in oh, the morning, really? two in the morning. I work out at 11 at night, oh, usually wow. around 1230. And then I do some work and watch the news or read something. My uh, yeah, I love late. I like late to late. I'll sleep late too. Yeah.
0: What time I are you mean, up in the
2: morning? Usually around nine ish. You? Okay.
0: Yeah, I'm the opposite. I'm an early bird. So I'm up around 3.30, 4 a.m. and probably in bed with my daughter around nine o'clock. I have a five year old, six year old now. So we're in the bed pretty early.
2: That's the best. That's a great age. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. and um, Most rewarding aspect of mentoring young professionals.
2: Seeing somebody who didn't know squat become a professional, successful, great person who people respect.
0: Okay. And if you weren't in real estate, what profession would you have pursued?
2: I think I would have been in the movie business. I think I would really? have been in maybe the music business. I love, I love creativity. So okay. I love the creativity of, of telling a story. Uh, I love great music. I just, I have no talent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you have some talent, obviously. All right, and uh, I think this is a good one, one of my favorite. Top three qualities you value in a business partner.
2: Oh, that's really good. I had a business partner who I didn't get along with, and it would be the three qualities that he didn't have. (laughs) (laughs) Number one, tolerance. So important. you got to tolerate your partner. Number two, uh, being a good planner. You can't just say, I'm winging it. Winging it when your partner doesn't work, I yeah. can't. My partner used to, I used to say, "What's your business plan?" He'd say, "It's right here, it's right here." <laughs> <And> that was <laughs> <That's one. it. laughs> And the next one is generosity. You have to be generous with each other. You can't be greedy with your partner. That that leads to nothing but bad. Yeah.
0: Okay. Excellent. Yeah. And one word to describe your leadership style.
2: Uh, that's a great question. One word. Um, I'm a giver. I'm a giver. I like to give people opportunities to try things. I like to give them more than they deserve in, in the anticipation that they'll earn it. So I, I like to be a giver as a leader. People look at me and they may, maybe they think that I'm an idiot and that they're, that I'm easy to take advantage of, but I'll, I'll take that. I'd rather be a giver than a taker. Okay. Okay.
0: And Joel, what's the most valuable lesson you've learned in your 40-year career in industrial real estate?
2: Oh, that's a great one. Um, I think that a lot of real estate guys are deal junkies, and that's a bad word, junkie. You don't want to be an anything junkie. And I think some people become uh, almost like compulsive gamblers in business and don't know it. And they get all these bad traits because if you study compulsive gamblers, they've got all these very tough things defects of character and once you become a gambler and you start valuing making money more than you value people and you take risks that don't make sense that could land you and the people you care about in trouble that is a dangerous place to be so I've learned not to be a compulsive gambler in business
0: okay and future trend in industrial real estate that excites you the most
2: Oh, I think there's going to be just a ton of companies coming here to really not only to the United States, also to Mexico. Mm-hmm. Mexico is also growing a lot. It's bringing a. It's, they're they're reshoring from other other countries overseas. I think there's just going to be a lot of businesses that are going to come here in industrial that have been overseas. And we're going to be making stuff here that used to be made overseas by cheap labor that, unfortunately, when supply chain problems happen, you just can't get your stuff here. That's what happened during COVID. You couldn't get anything. Yeah. So they're going to start making more here. And that's going to fill up buildings.
0: Okay. And last one, favorite Chicago restaurant?
2: I like Gibson's. You? Yeah, Gibson's is a good one.
0: Yeah, like, if you're a meat eater, Gibson's is a good one.
2: And they have good fish. They've got good sides. Yeah. You know, if you if you order a slice of cake, it's the size of a cake. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>
0: just... <laughs> yeah. Chicago is such a foodie town. That's one of the most things I like about it. And whatever you like in Chicago, you can find it. So.
2: You sure can. Yeah, it's really fantastic.
0: Yeah. Tough winners, but yeah, a great town.
2: Yeah, it sure is. Absolutely.
0: All right, Joel. So before we hop off, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, reach out, invest, collaborate, what's the best way for them to get in touch?
2: Uh, we have a website. It's called writproperties.com. B-R-I-T with one T, properties.com. Okay. And we have a lot of resources. The first thing that an investor should read is the article that explains why you should not invest with us. And after reading that, if somebody says, I still want to, then they've done their homework.
0: Okay. Excellent. All right. So, yeah, we'll run that across the screen. And yeah, Joel, thanks. you. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Such a nice conversation. Look forward to having you back again soon.
2: Donald, thank you. Ditto. Thank you, buddy.
0: Well, folks, that wraps up another insightful episode of Dealmaker Diaries. We hope you enjoyed today's deep dive into the world of strategic dealmaking. Before we go, a quick reminder, if you like what you heard today and want to stay updated on all things deals, be sure to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. And hey, we love hearing from our community, so don't forget to leave us a review. Your feedback not only helps us improve, but also lets other deal enthusiasts discover the show. So whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, take a moment to share your thoughts. As always, thank you for joining us on Dealmaker Diaries. Keep those negotiation skills sharp. Stay tuned for more expert insights. And until next time, make those deals happen. This is Don Thomas
2: signing off.